1: Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson and this is episode 70 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast. I bring you in-depth big name interviews, 16 rock and roll hall of famers to date and short four or five minute daily episodes as well, looking back on an event on that day in rock history on a show called This Day Rocks. Now, Vintage Rock Pod is proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Please check them out for a wide range of music podcasts on a variety of bands, genres and styles. It really is something for everyone. But for today's show then, I've got a great chat with a man who was a full-time member of Jefferson Starship, later... Starship played on Rod Stewart's first four studio albums as well as with Hot Tuna alongside former guest on the show yorma Kalkinen so you can expect some good stories from my guest Pete Sears but as always a few shout outs to start the show and thank you to everyone enjoying the short This Day Rocks episode still getting nice feedback about these I'm glad they're hitting the spot as well as hearing some fun stories from these big name stars that I interview we also hear from other podcasters and journalists and fans so I really want to say thank you Thanks to recent contributors to the program Action Jackson and Mac B from the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast, Stephen Daniel Arnoff from Bob Dylan about Man and God and Law podcast, Uncle Steve from Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone, Philip from Pink Floyd Collectors, Neil Poole from Def Lep Pod, Lee McCormack from Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast, Corey from Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited, Gino Conti, a Scottish radio professional, and of course, of the show, Joe Kay from Play That Rock and Roll podcast. Please do check them out if you get the chance. They all do great work, so please support them. I certainly appreciate their input on Vintage Rock Pod. Hello, as well, to Mark Wilkes this week, who messaged me some kind words and he also asked how I managed to get my interview guests. Well, a bit of witchcraft and luck mainly, but I do have some contacts from my time in radio. I worked full-time in radio for almost 20 years, which certainly helps, and I've got a good network of kind of PR agents and managers who trust me with their acts, which is certainly nice. But thanks for reaching out, Mark. It's much appreciated. Make sure that you are following Vintage Rock Pod on the social media sites as well, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and especially YouTube, because when I get a chance, I pop up some of the video clips from the interviews I've done as well. Today's interview 70, so you've got a lot to catch up on. It's nice to see the guests sometimes isn't it so i try to make it a little bit different i don't just include the full interview it's not just a slap on there it's not just a copy of the podcast what i do is include parts on youtube that maybe don't get used in the podcast or mix them with pictures and video clips that sort of thing just something a bit different for you just search for vintage rock pod on all those platforms youtube facebook instagram twitter hit follow subscribe or like they are entirely free they won't cost you anything at all and it's all just good classic rock content Right, back to today's show then. And Pete Sears is my guest. As I said, he was a permanent member of Jefferson Starship. He worked with Rod Stewart on Rod's first four studio albums, played with Hot Tuna for many years and has some great stories to tell. His connections are awesome and you'll hear some fun tales, including one about Jimi Hendrix jumping on stage with his band back in the 60s and a dog barking that made it onto one of Rod Stewart's records. Plus, what happened in Germany when they lost all their equipment due to a riot because of Grace Slick. Now, Pete's is back with a band he played with for a short time in the 60s called Steamhammer. They're a British group who released four albums between 1969 and 1972, so we'll get onto that as well. So here you go. Enjoy my chat with the great Pete Sears. If we go back to the 60s, I mean, you began your career and you played in various groups throughout, but uh, you played with Steam Hammer. You played piano on their first record, didn't you? And you're back with Steam Hammer now with the founding member Martin Pugh, John Lingwood, who joined Steam Hammer in 72, and um, also played with Manfred Man's Earth Band as well, I think, didn't he? But uh, you've also got Phil Columbato, and you've got a brand new record, so let's start there. Tell us about this new record then.
2: Yeah, uh, well, we were, uh, I got a call from Martin. You I know, hadn't seen him in many years and uh, uh, he'd been asked to get a new band together for, for the Glastonbury Festival because Steam Hammer oh. played the very first Glastonbury Festival. when well, It was just in a farmer's field, you know. <laughs> and, um, yep. and so they, uh, they, they they offered to give us the Avalon stage, you know, and it, if Martin could get the band back together. So so he called me, and I mean, I was never a member of the band. I was just a guest on the first album, right? You know, so it sounded great to me. I used to watch the Steam Hammer the Marquee Club in London in 1969, and they, they were a great band. You know, had that really uh, classic uh, sort of early British blues rock sound. You know, and Martin was one of those cats. You know, playing um who'd listen to Freddie King, BB King, and those guys, and and develop their own thing based on that, like like Clapton and Beck and Page and those guys. But there are other guys there too. You know, like Martin that were just uh, Playing really well, so I ended up playing on their album, uh, the first one, just a little bit of piano, you know, and that's right before I came over to the States for the first time in 1969. Uh, just uh, made my way over there, you know. But yeah, Steamhammer—they uh, had a, a really good band, you know. They had uh, Martin Quittington, who ended up—I ended up working with him on Rod stewart's solo albums. I mean, and uh, and as Mickey Waller was also a drummer with steam hammer i knew him through he worked with jeff beck but the drummer i saw the most then the guy that was actually playing on the on the the record was a fellow named mike rushton and then he left and then uh mickey came in for a bit and then mick bradley came in for quite a long time and actually martin was playing guitar of course on the album this new album Mm -hmm. he also worked on the very first rod stewart album So there was a sort of a connection there, you know, Martin, Mickey Waller. Mickey is the one that introduced me to Rod. And and then Rod had come to a Steam Hammer show, liked Martin's playing and and, uh, brought him down to play on the first one. Sorry, I'm rambling, aren't I? <laughs> no,
1: not at all. We, we <laughs> love hearing these stories. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the, the new record, then, we'll, we'll stay with that for now. Um, Wailing yeah. Again is is the, is the track, the title of it. Now, tell us a bit about this record itself then. I mean, how did it come about? Uh, was it fun to work on, that sort of thing? Yeah,
2: well, as I, as I mentioned, uh, the Glastonbury Festival, we were supposed to play this. Uh, we needed a singer. And of course, John Lingwood was, was, was plays with Manfred Mann, like you said, he plays with the Earth Band to all the time with them. I, I worked with him, with Martin Quinnington. We had a band together. Fred, before I joined Jefferson Starship in 74, we were just finishing up Smiler, the Rod Stewart, last Rod Stewart album I did. And, and Martin and I had a band together with John Lingwood on drums, but that fell through. I went up because I came over to the States, but I think they carried on. So it was really nice to reconnect with these guys. But then of course, because of COVID, the lockdown, uh, the Glastonbury Festival was cancelled. you know, we suddenly had this thing, you know, we didn't know what to do with, because we all lived apart from each other, like 6,000 miles, you know, <laughs> uh, just a slight thing, you know, and, and but I have a Pro Tools studio here, so, so they started sending me files, and, and Martin would send a file, guitar track uh, that he did to a click track, then I would work with that and put bass on, and and then send it to England. And then John would put his uh, amazing drum parts on and send that back. And I drop that into the track. And I'd be and then do the same with the singer, Phil, who, who lived in the Joshua Tree Desert, he was living in a trailer at the time, with his pet python and wild howling <laughs> around is it's pretty, pretty amazing. And he, you know, every because of the digital age, you, you can get actually if you got a good microphone, you can sort of do get a good track almost anywhere you know if you're self-critical and you're able to sort of self-produce really you know and then i mess with it but that's actually not really unlike the way some of the classic rock albums were recorded okay. in the uh, 70s play you know some of the, the classic rock albums i mean it surprised me actually uh, about you know, you know, I wasn't sure. I thought oh, just an experiment see how this this thing goes. You know, then after about three quarters of the way through the project, I began to realize it's actually, it actually doesn't sound bad. You know, <laughs> <It> sounds <laughs> sounds okay. What when? What's going on here? Is it actually beginning to sound like something? And uh, and then we realized that we, we may have something that sounds decent. You know, and but then I really got down to mixing and really analyzed it. So when pleasantly surprised that some people seem to like it and so far we'll see
1: <laughs> yeah it's fantastic it's full of big riffs and it's hard and bluesy and points it's, it's a great record isn't
2: it yeah it's got that sort of early uh, blues rock thing which a lot of those bands sort of morphed through the years and changed the sound changed and, this It does
1: have a fresh feel to it. Just as a reminder, it's called Wailing Again, and I recommend everyone checks it out. It is, it's a fantastic record. But uh, you've mentioned it a few times, so it would be nice to just touch on it. I mean, you played with Rod Stewart, as you said. Uh, was it his first four albums? Some huge albums on there, some huge music on there. I mean, what was Rod like to work as a person? What was he as a person? What was he like as a creator of music? What was, what was that whole period like with Rod? Uh,
2: well, I liked his... Well, I mean, each album, his house got progressively bigger and it's faster and faster <laughs> cars, right? But uh, but he was uh, very, you know, uh, he was very sort of down to earth guy back then, you know, and uh, uh, just a great performer. You know, I've, I first saw him playing actually with um, when Mickey Waller brought me down to see him play with Jeff Beck. It was around the the Truth album around that period. It was an amazing album they did. That was. Uh, and Mickey became a very close friend. We worked together with Long John Baudry, blues bands, first two American tours. So um, he was a, a real character, you know. But, uh, but Rod had a really interesting style of producing. He'd uh, bring you down to his house in the afternoon, uh, just play you. The first time he heard the song, you know, the first time I, he had a grand piano there, I'd just sit down, learn the song right there and try to memor, memorize it. And then we go straight to the studio, and, and it was almost always a first take, you know. And even if you mess up, <laughs> and, and uh, he was really big on the feel, making sure the feel was there, more than micromanaging, which happened in production styles later in later years, in the eighties, and which became ridiculous in the eighties. I'm not talking about Rod. I'm talking about in general production yeah. style became yeah. obsessive, you know, about tuning and accuracy and the stuff and I think a lot of uh feel was sacrificed because of that that's the way I look at it you know because but I was with Jefferson Starship which turned into Starship oh my god <laughs> I liked the Jefferson Starship a lot but so the last thing I did was we built the city of rock and roll and and it was it just wasn't really my cup of tea but I'm 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 okay with the royalties and stuff but but uh but you know it it it, it things Fans morph, you know, and lose their original thing. I guess sometimes. But uh, why was I talking about that
1: for a couple? That's all right. Uh, we're talking about Rod Stewart. Oh, I'll yeah, ask you another what, question. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. We have to mention that the huge song, that the absolute classic, yeah. number one both sides of the Atlantic, Maggie, Maggie May. Oh, I mean, take me back to, to to the studio. Take me back to that time with with that song being produced and and created. I mean, was it? Did you have the feeling at the time that it was going to be this incredible super song that was going to kind of linger and last for, for 50 years?
2: No. Uh, we knew it was it. We felt like it was a good album, you know, and, um, and Martin Quittington and Ronnie, were, they were doing this amazing guitar work, and we were bringing in violin players from, from the Italian restaurant around the corner, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, just just amazing players all over the place. Ray Jackson on mandolin. But Rod had a core group of players, Mickey, Martin, me, and, of course, Ian McLagan, great Ian McLagan yes. on B3, mostly. But uh, except for one track, every Rod Stewart solo album on one track, he'd bring in the Faces as a band because they, they would go off playing the stuff of, so the Rod's uh, solo. Yeah. So, Kate okay, the great, great drummer. Ken Jones would come in, Kenny would yeah. come in, and, and Ronnie Lane on bass and, and uh, Ian would play the piano and, and organ. So there was always that because the Faces recorded their own albums on a separate record label. And Rod always had, a, uh, as I said, he liked the feel of, of the music. And those albums really progressed, just gradually evolved with minimal overdubs. So, you know, things like on the last album I did with him, the song called Sweet Little Rock and Roll, Chuck Berry song. You know, that was all completely live, you know. And Mickey Water used to bring his dog down, his boxer dog, (laughs) or Zach, down to the session sometimes and just sit him in front of the drum kit, you know, in front of the bass drum, you know. So we were doing Sweet Little Rock and Roller and Mickey's had his dog sitting there quietly. And then then the minute Ron Wood broke into his Chuck Berry-style opening guitar riff, Zach started barking really loud, you know, and, and, I, and it became this riff back and forth between Ron's guitar, opening guitar lick and, and, the, and Mickey's dog barking. And it was leaking into all the tracks and we're trying not to, you know, we're all laughing. We're trying to keep it together, you know, and it's pretty really funny because it stopped. He stopped barking on, almost on cue, you know I mean? The minute the band actually broke in to the rhythm, he stopped barking, you know? And so Rod listened to that back and decided to put that track on there so that some people think that's, that track was sort of like just some reason they got a, a dog barking track and put it on the record. But no, that's absolute live moment, you know. I liked that style of production, you know, that Rod had. He, he was, yeah. he really, uh, and, and you talk about um, Maggie May. I had very little to do with that track. There's no piano on there really, but I am credited on it because, uh oh, I played a celeste. You hear a little like toy piano, like like this sort, of, right? That kind of thing, and <laughs> and, and you hear that—that's me. You know, but it's really Ian it's Ian McLagan on the beautiful B three, Mickey on drums, and uh, Ray Jackson playing that that amazing uh, mandolin. But he, he was from Lindisfarne, and uh, yes, uh, great band and martin Quintington wrote that beautiful music for it with rod and of course ronnie played this amazing guitar it was a really good good track but you know that wasn't going to be the a side originally the original a side was reason to believe uh, which i was playing piano on that and that was the a side but the djs didn't want to play that they wanted to play the b side <laughs> which is maggie may and so it was like a surprise hit for rod and a massive hit of course and. Uh, and I was going back and forth. I was playing with different bands back and forth across the Atlantic. And uh, so the first one was Gasoline Alley, and then uh, the next album, you know, Every Picture played, Tells back, a Story. Yeah. A story, then Never a Dull Moment, which I can only come over for a, two weeks, so I missed the photo session. <laughs> but uh, I ended up with my name somewhere on there. I forgot where he put it now. I had to get back to to the states because Nicky Hopkins. That asked me to play bass in a band he was getting together and he was off with the rolling stones on tour and he rented me a house in, in Mel valley in moraine <laughs> county in california and uh so for the first time you know in my career i had like three months to just sort of hang around and do nothing i didn't know what to do and <laughs> nikki was sending me money you know and uh, but so i went i learned to fly you know i learned to fly airplanes i'd always wanted to, all right okay so I, yeah. I flying you know but uh that was fun but yeah but nicky came off the stones tour and wasn't doing so good health wise you know he didn't do well touring really because his health was so bad and because it didn't happen but the drummer who I didn't know at the time who became a very close friend of his later the prairie prince from the tubes yeah 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 uh, he was going to be the drummer in that band and he was in london at wow. that point waiting You just sort of muddle your way through life, (laughs) here and
1: there. It is. It's wonderful to hear all the different connections, all the different names and all the different bands that they worked with and how they all intertwine. And it's it's just so funny the the way the music industry works. But just going to move on to, to the next band. You've mentioned it yourself and Jefferson Starship. I mean, you played with them for um well their existence pretty much jefferson starship you wrote you recorded you toured formed on every show every album that sort of thing again another group with huge hits big albums platinum records that sort of stuff um red octopus i think was top of the the billboard chart for like six weeks or something it was absolutely massive now what was it like being part of a group with that that was that massive at the time then especially with the the name and the evolution from jefferson airplane and things like that
2: yeah uh it was actually never meant well, they, Paul told me, Paul Cantor and Grace said that it wasn't meant to be, really be the airplane, you know, and and yeah. of course, obviously that's the connection, but that's the it's the obvious um, foundation for, for Jefferson Starship is a Jefferson airplane, but Yorma and Jack, Jack Cassidy and Yorma Kalkin were really good friends of mine and uh, ended up playing for 10 years with those guys in Hot Tuna years later but they they left in I think it was the airplane. They left in around seventy two to go concentrate on on uh, Hot Tuna, their own offshoot band. So so in seventy three, I played on Grace Slick's solo album Manhole, and uh, I was co producing and arranging the music for Kathy McDonald, an album called Insane Asylum. And we were at Wally Hyder Studios, and I went upstairs because David Freiberg was a close friend of mine. And he introduced me to Paul and Grace. And I ended up re- recording some blues piano in the studio. I didn't know they didn't know they were recording it, and and uh, and Grace scribbled some words down right on, on the moment, and it became a song called "Better Lying Down," which is one of her more subtle lyrics. And um, <laughs> she uh, so she put that on the album. Then I played some bass on a, what, another track, and we actually recorded that. We played that song live on. Um, the first few Jefferson Starship tours that I did a few years later. But, um, but during that session, Paul said they're getting a band together called Jefferson Starship. And, you know, they want a since 1973, you know, and they asked me to, to, uh, be a part of it. But I said, I had to go back to England to re- recall <laughs> with Rod Stewart on Smiler. You know, I'm sure Rob wouldn't have lost any sleep if I, if I hadn't come back and done it, but, <laughs> But uh, but you know obviously it was a, I enjoyed playing on those albums so I, I went back and and but it took a year actually to make that album Smiler because there was okay. record company problems and things and, yeah. and between the faces company and Rudd's company there was this whole thing going down but then I ended up flying over and joining Jefferson Starship and we did our first album which was Dragonfly and I, I wrote a song on there with Grace Slick Hyperdrive and, that was also spontaneous, you know. That was very—I mean, Grace was scribbling the lyrics again, you know. That just really had a good idea, you know. And then we just Grace and I carried on writing for a while, and all through the seventies, and that we had a lot, lot of great albums and some not so good, but mostly good. And played big stadiums, you know. We did a live recording, but it wasn't meant to be a live recording back then. It turned out uh, Sony put it out years later. Uh, it was the radio station that recorded it. And it wasn't multi-tracked. It was a true live album. And, and it was, a, it was a, in New York City in Central Park. It was about 100,000 people out there going to see the band. And the, the live recording really captures that era, that whole feel, and telling people to get out of the trees and all this, all this stuff.
1: <laughs> it's all there. And just talking about Grace there, I mean, she, she is an iconic person in celebrity culture isn't she i spoke to Yoma last year and and he said that she, she doesn't suffer fools she says what she feels and but at the same time she's a lovely person i mean what, what what's your take on on grace as a person
2: oh I, I mean she had a drinking problem you know she'd be the first to admit that uh, but she'd go on stage and and sing great right and she had certain kind of personality and magnetism natural magnetism the audience, she just just walked to the front of the stage, and the crowd would go nuts. You know, she's one of those <laughs> front people that was just a, an amazing personality, and also a very good lyricist. And uh, the band broke up because of a problem. But uh, that was, uh, you know, where that big riot in Germany in 1978. That original band broke up when we lost all our equipment at a riot and the Lorelei Festival because Grace. Half of us were at the hotel trying to talk her in, talk Paul Cantor into going on without Grace. And Marty said he'd go on without Grace, but, but not without Paul and Grace. So, so we ended up not going on. And then um, we'd asked, the, you know, we told the audience they could have their money back. And David Freiberg, with the road manager, Bill Laudner, they were, they were with the promoter. But I think there were certain parts of it left out. A bit about giving the money back in the in the translation and apparently uh, and they went completely nuts and and you know ended up setting, setting fire to the stage and chopping up the drum kit um yeah. and i lost all my instruments musical instruments on that so that was a very traumatic thing grace was in a room the whole time but she was sick she wasn't well and and uh but normally you know uh, being sick would never would never have stopped her from going on performing I mean, there's there was something else involved but I, I won't get into but and um so you know she was having a really hard time and it's just one of those things you know we lost everything that day but so but that that, that was actually a really if anybody that cares about it that was a, a major turning point when we went we went on to play networth festival without grace mm-hmm. she'd gone back to um you know, to the States to go into rehab and uh, the Nedworth Festival, we did it with Genesis, but we did it on borrowed equipment without race slick, right? So it was very difficult to do, you know, but, but Genesis is great that day, but
1: Sorry, can I just interrupt there? Can I ask another question as well? Um, there's a time when you're with um, Sam Gopal Dream and and Jimi Hendrix. He was a fan of you guys and he jumped up on stage with you. Is that, is that correct? Tell us that story.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if he was a fan of ours, but he got up on stage. He, he, uh, but, but Sam, Kapal, The original Sam Kapal Dream was just a trio with Mick Hutchinson, and myself and Sam on Tablas. And we'd play this sort of, we had a kind of an underground following to play all the big psychedelic clubs, Middle Earth, Yeah, 44, UFO Club. And we did and we did some big festivals, too, you know, and like the Alexander Palace and uh, Christmas on Earth show with Hendrix and everybody. So, Jim, we were around each other. I knew Mitch pretty good. And Mitch later asked me to join a band he was forming. So, but, but we were playing the Speakeasy Club and we we were completely out of it we were we we'd been up a whole week um you know <laughs> on i mean we were really young and stupid you know we've we'd been on such sort of well. yeah. <laughs> consciousness for a week and 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 um and jimmy just sort of showed up on stage just came up and started playing and i and I, I, I he took um he took mickey's guitar mickey took my picked up my bass and I I went sat on the B three, and and I just remember just watching Jimmy do his thing, you know. And uh, he was he had his mic stand, he was ru- rubbing it against the strings like a slight guitar thing. And he could pl- play. He just took mixed guitar and played it back to, back to front for him, uh, just course, like yeah. like nothing, you know. It was an amazing. Band. So that was good. That was nice, you know. And I, but I had I had some connection with him before, and I was with de Delise. Uh, when I was yes. one of those guys, yeah, we, we, he Chaz Chandler I brought him into the kitchen at Eric Eric Byrne's place and uh, the, the animal's house, in, and and I had a half an hour conversation with Jimmy then, and and he came down and overdubbed on a record that we did called uh, Amen, and which was never released. But he Chaz brought him down and overdubbed some guitar. Anyway, so we had these connections. It's all about timing, really, with with uh, where you are. And, you know, I've come close to. Things, this and that. But over the years, you do what you can, you know, and uh, one thing leads to another, hopefully, and keep working.
1: Absolutely. And the magic can happen. You mentioned Mitch there. You, you were friends with Mitch, weren't you, Mitch Mitchell? Yeah. Um, and you spoke to him not long after Jimmy passed, didn't you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I did it for three days. And Mitch was pretty upset. They were very close. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he was telling me that the receiver to the phone was was lying on the floor which i hadn't heard anybody else say that but uh, and like he was in, in mitch's mind said that you no know, he was trying to get help when he was yeah and and uh because people some people were sort of implying that he he, he was ready to move on he did, did it on purpose or something. jimmy had somehow committed suicide or something like that which is farthest from the truth and nick um you know, and uh so he said he said that jimmy was uh looking forward to the new album and, and mitch and the, i think he, had a, he was using a different drummer, right cox i think he was using on bass and and he was going off in a new direction but mitch was going to be yeah. a part of that direction and uh so he really affected mitch but heavily i mean I, I don't think he ever really completely recovered from because because he, he lost his friend as, as, as well as at times yeah
1: well it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you Pete again I recommend everyone to check out Wailing Again by Steam Hammer the new record and uh, yeah just keep in touch with what Pete's doing fantastic work alright thanks
2: a lot man good to see you cheers
1: The wonderful Pete C is there. He's done so much, hasn't he? And he's worked with so many legends. I love hearing all those kind of stories. And I find it fascinating to hear how all those musicians seem to ebb and flow. There's lots of names in that interview that other people I've spoken to on previous episodes of Vintage Rock Pod have spoken about or even been interviewed by me on the record as well. So it's interesting to see them all weave in and out of each other's lives and careers. Anyway, right on to this week's top fives, and it's going to be Jefferson Starship songs. Now, if you're a fan of the Jefferson family of bands, then please do go and check out my interview with yorma Kalkinen, episode 35, and you can hear my top five Jefferson Airplane songs on there. But back to today, before we hear this week's selection, I want to mention some of your comments on last week's picks. I offered up my top five Cream songs, and you guys responded, as always, brilliantly. Quite a few lists had White Room's Sunshine of Your Love on there, of course. Joey Michaud offered up Tales of Brave Ulysses, which just missed out on my top five, and Sweet Wine as well. Dennis Stallard threw in Politician and Spoonful for his list. Bob Fester suggested Dance the Night Away among his favourites, along with Badge, which was echoed by Neil Maloney, and Kirsty Prince, who added that she liked the way Badge got its name, which, if you don't know, involves George Harrison. Look it up if you're not familiar. And uh, also Kevin Williams, he broadly agreed with My Five, only adding in Strange Brew for his choices. Such a great set of songs from a band who are only together, really, for three years or so. Pretty phenomenal. Now, if you haven't checked out last week's Side 2 show yet, please do so I speak with Jeff Berlin a friend of Cream's Jack Bruce in fact Jack said that Jeff was the best bass player he'd ever heard well anyway Jeff talks about his friendship with Jack how he inspired him and about a new tribute album to Jack which features an incredible cast of musicians including the likes of Sammy Hagar and Rush's Alex Lifeson and Geddy Lee but back to today's show again top 5 we're talking Jefferson Starship now remember this is my own personal choice it's highly subjective I don't expect you to agree in in fact i'd love to hear from you if you do disagree so here you go my favorite five songs from jefferson starship at five is a track from the last album nuclear furniture it opens the record in fact it's very 80s but has such a groovy beat that hooks you in and that's why i've got a soft spot for it it went to number six on the billboard mainstream rock chart in 1984 at number five is laying it on the line Four is an unusual choice from the album Freedom at Point Zero from 1979. Not a single, but it does exactly what it says in the lyrics. Rock and roll is good time music, and this is a good time song. Number four is rock music. Rock and roll. 3 is the first single released from the album Modern Times it went top 30 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1981. It has that big fuller 80s sound and a killer chorus and number 3 is Find Your Way Back. At number two is another slightly unusual pick, probably a bit of an epic, nearly seven minutes long, taken from the platinum selling album Spitfire from 1976. I love its growing, building melody, reminiscent of that era rock songs. At number two is St. Charles. And at number one is a rock and roller of theirs. Mickey Thomas' vocals on this are perfect in my opinion. It's ballsy with big power chords and was the first single from the album Freedom at Point Zero. The number one Jefferson Starship song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Jane. And there you go. Plenty to dissect in there, I'm sure. But that's my personal selection. I can hear cries of, what about miracles? But for me, I also found it a bit syrupy, and I I do like my rocking numbers. So please, come on, tell me what your thoughts are on that list. Email me, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, or message me on the social media channels. I'll give you a mention on next week's show as well, which, by the way, is with a blues-rocking Canadian guitar hero, so you don't want to miss that. Or, for that fact, any of the Vintage Rock Pod episodes that I do put out, whether it's a main show a side two or a this day rocks which comes out every single day loads of classic rock content for you to listen to every single week well that's it for me on episode 70 then a big thanks again for listening and getting in touch i love to hear from you i'll be back tomorrow with a this day rocks all about a legendary album released on this day in 1965 but until then remember if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of classic rock just tell them my music is better than yours take care